Welcome to Time Travelling Team, the weekly podcast where we review every story of Doctor Who right from the very beginning. I'm Trisha. And I'm Patty. This week we are kicking off Season 5 of Doctor Who with The Tomb of the Cybermen. We are discussing the Doctor, the companions, the villains, and giving our thoughts on the story as a whole. We'd also love to hear your thoughts on this story. So, to join the discussion, you can check us out at Time Team, that's T-I-M-E-T-E-A-M-P, on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Or you can email us at timetravellingteam at teamproductions.com. Paddington, I will hand over to you for our story recap. Episode 1. On a windswept plateau on Scarrow, the Doctor and Jamie show Victoria around the TARDIS. She is initially sceptical at their claims as to how the machine works, but the Doctor explains that he has had a long time to fine-tune the process. He also gives his age as 450 years old, a fact that shocks both of his young companions. He suggests to Jamie that he take Victoria to change into more comfortable clothes, with Jamie requesting that the Doctor try for a smooth takeoff for Victoria's first adventure. On a ridge above a rocky valley, a man named Toberman is watching a mining charge being placed at the base of one side of the valley. The other members of the group call out to him to return, with one of them, Vinner, giving out to his master Kaftan about Toberman. Elsewhere, the leaders of the expedition, Professor Parry and Kleeg, are discussing their objectives with Captain Hopper, the man in charge of their guides. They inform him that their aim is to uncover the lost capital city of the planet Telos, but Hopper doesn't really care about that as he is eager to leave the planet. The demolition expert, Rogers, returns to the group and he sets off the charges. Although initially thinking they have failed, a section of the hill falls away to reveal a large pair of doors. The entire party rushes up the hill towards the doors, which are decorated with motifs of Cybermen. Captain orders a reward of £50 to the first man to open the doors, and one of the men rushes towards them, only to be electrocuted to death when he touches the doors. Before they can discuss the matter further, their attention is drawn to the sound of the TARDIS, which lands over a nearby ridge. Parry, along with Hopper and a few of his men, go to investigate, and they capture the travellers as they appear over the ridge. Jamie and Hopper begin to get into an argument, but the Doctor marches off towards the doors and investigates the body. Vinner suggests that they may be from a rival expedition, and when asked about their own expedition, Parry says that they are searching for the last remaining settlement of Cybermen, and clues as to why they are now extinct. Hopper urges Parry and the others to return to the ship, seeing that it is too dangerous to go forward. Jamie and Victoria urge the Doctor to leave as well, but he insists that they must stay, seeing as how the Cybermen are involved. He offers to help the expedition in their search, but Cleague is reluctant to let him join them, but Parry overrules him, reminding both him and Captain that their financial backing of the expedition doesn't give them any authority over it. Once the issue is resolved, the Doctor tests the doors and informs the group that they are now safe to open. However, neither he nor Jamie are strong enough to open them, and the Doctor suggests that the muscular Toberman have a go at them. Captain is reluctant to let him try, but Parry reminds her that this is part of the reason that she brought Toberman with her. Toberman successfully manages to pull open the doors and the expedition marches in, paying little heed to the Doctor's warnings to be careful. After accidentally taking each other's hands, the Doctor and Jamie notice that Victoria is hesitant to proceed, and after complimenting her on her new wardrobe, the trio follow the expedition. The group enters a large command centre and begin to look around whilst off to the side, Cleeg, Captain and Toberman conspire to eliminate the new arrivals. After a brief survey, Parry informs the group that the only other way out of the room is via a nearby hatch, but the Doctor points out that there are actually two other doors in the room, which he activates under the pretense of symbolic logic and general attentiveness. Parry then divides the party into two groups to explore each of the doorways, initially leaving Toberman and the two women behind. However, Victoria protests that they are just as capable as the others, and Vinner joins them as they go through one doorway, whilst Jamie and Hayden, another party member, go through the other one. Meanwhile, the Doctor, Parry and Cleeg stay behind to investigate the hatch, with the Doctor suggesting Cleeg take the lead. 
Down the first hallway, Victoria's group enter a room and Vinner notices that Toberman is no longer with them. Captain says that she sent him to join Jamie's group to even out the numbers. Vinner then suggests that the room they are in is a conversion centre where Cybermen are made, but Captain says it could be a revitalisation chamber instead. Meanwhile, Jamie and Hayden find themselves in a room that is littered with strange caterpillar-like creatures that Jamie points out are dead. Back in the main chamber, Cleeg is at a loss for how to activate the rest of the machinery, and the doctor suggests they may be this for the best. He then inadvertently gives the stumped Cleeg the binary sequence for how the machinery in the room works, and he protests as Cleeg runs off to the command bank. The room then starts to shake, and the doctor admonishes him before rushing off to check on the others. As he leaves, Cleeg and Parry continue to try and open the hatch. While this was going on, none of them noticed Toberman sneak out the front entrance. Back in the revitalization chamber, Victoria has entered one of the pods out of curiosity, and Catherine then pulls a lever, sealing her inside it. Vinner calls out to her to help get Victoria out. Their attempts prove to be useless, but after Victoria knocks on the pod door, confirming she is still alive, Vinner rushes off to get help. Once he is gone, Catherine starts to operate the controls, but is stopped by the doctor, who returns with Vinner. He manages to open the pod doors and comforts the distressed Victoria before taking her to find Jamie. In the other room, Jamie notices one of the caterpillars move slightly, but gets distracted by Hayden as he activates a control panel, which causes a strange hypnotic illusion to appear on the wall that puts Jamie into a deep trance. Jamie seems compelled to move closer to the wall, but Hayden pulls the lever back, breaking the connection. They both ponder why the Cybermen would need a hypnosis machine, and Hayden says he is willing to undergo the hypnosis treatment instead citing that it is most likely a subliminal message of some kind. He gets close to the wall just as the Doctor and others arrive and they try to shut down the machine. However, they are too late as a Cyberman slides into the room on a pulley and a wall-mounted gun fires at Hayden, killing him. Episode 2 Victoria screams out in fright as Hayden crumples to the floor and the Doctor demands to know how Jamie operated the control panel. Parry soon arrives and is shocked to see what happened and tries to calm historical Vinner. They tell Parry what had happened, and he is initially sceptical of their claims, especially since the Cyberman is nowhere to be seen. The Doctor tries to get Jamie to remember the sequence he used to activate the machines, as he is curious over the fact that Hayden was shot in the back while the Cyberman appeared in the front of them. Jamie manages to activate the machine, and the Doctor tells the others to take cover as the cycle of events repeats itself, with the wall gun accidentally hitting the Cyberman this time. The Doctor theorises that since the Cyberman is just an empty shell, they are most likely in a weapons testing room. Parry says that they should return to the main chamber with Hayden's body. As they're preparing his body, Victoria picks up the remnants of one of the caterpillars and the doctor tells her to be careful, informing her that it is something called a cybermat and that it would be safer to leave it alone. However, after he turns to leave, she places it in her bag. Tobin makes his way back into the main chamber and informs Catherine that he has done what she asked him to do. Meanwhile, Cleek expresses his concerns that he will not be able to unravel the full code before they run out of time, but Captain reassures him that he has plenty of time. The others return before they can discuss anything else, and Parry informs everyone that he has decided it is too dangerous to stay, and so the expedition will t- return to Earth. Cleek and Captain object, but he shouts them down. Hopper then arrives and informs the group that they cannot leave as the ship's fuel pump has been sabotaged. Vinner says that they should leave the structure and return to the safety of the ship, but Hopper refuses as it could cause delays to the repairs, which he estimates will take at least 72 hours. The Doctor, however, gets him to admit that he doesn't want anyone on the ship until he figures out who the saboteur is. Cleek says that they can use this time to finish trying to open the hatch, and the Doctor decides to help him despite his protests and Toberman's threats. After a short while, Cleek manages to open the hatch, and Parry says that they should go to investigate. He tells Vinner to retrieve the cold weather clothing left to them by Hopper, and then says that they will all go down except for Victoria and Captain. 
Once again, Victoria tries to protest this, but the Doctor asks her to stay behind to keep an eye on Kaftan, and she reluctantly agrees to do so. Once the others are gone, Kaftan prepares some food for herself and Victoria. The men climb down the hatchway and find the area at the bottom of the ladder to be completely frozen over. They make their way into a larger chamber and are greeted by the sight of hundreds of cryogenic pods built into the wall like a giant honeycomb. Klieg announces that these are the tombs of the Cybermen. They begin to look around, with Klieg and the Doctor taking a look at a nearby control panel. Back up in the main chamber, Victoria falls into a deep sleep due to the food that Kaftan gave her being drugged. Kaftan then closes the hatch, sealing the others off in the tombs. Jamie climbs up the ladder to see if he can open it, whilst Vinner starts to panic that they will only be able to survive for a few hours. The Doctor notices that Klieg doesn't appear to be too concerned about their plight, and Klieg responds that logically the hatch can be opened from the inside as well as the outside. He then starts to work on the controls, but in actuality, he is starting the awakening process for the Cybermen. The others notice the ice in the room beginning to melt, and they all watch as the Cybermen begin to remove in their pods. Parry and Klieg watch in amazement, but Venner rushes to the control panel and starts to reverse the process. Suddenly, Klieg pulls a gun on him and orders him to step away from the panel. Venner refuses, and Klieg kills him before ordering the others to stay away so he can start the awakening process again. Up in the chamber, Victoria awakens and asks Kaftan what is going on. After a series of cryptic responses to her questions about the others, Victoria realises that she is the one who closed the hatch and she goes to open it again. However, Captain pulls a gun on her and tells her to wait until she gets a message from Klieg. As this is going on, the Cybermat in Victoria's handbag comes back to life and chews its way free. Victoria sees it's coming towards them and calls out a warning to Captain, who ignores her thinking that she is trying to trick her. The Cybermat jumps up and bites Captain on the neck, causing her to drop her gun as she falls to the floor unconscious. Victoria picks up the gun and shoots the Cybermat, destroying it. She then runs off to find Hopper. Back in the tomb chamber, Jamie suggests to the Doctor that Klieg has played them all along, but the Doctor admits that he was onto Klieg from the start, but was curious to see what his exact goal was. They then listen as Klieg explains that he belongs to a secret society called the Brotherhood of Logicians, whose wish to control the Earth, and they plan on using the Cybermen to assist them in their goals. They then all turn to watch as the Cybermen start to emerge from their pods. Several of them open an ornate sarcophagus and a figure emerges, who the Doctor calls their leader and is known as a Cyber Controller. Klieg addresses him and tries to assert his dominance over the Cybermen by saying that he is responsible for their resurrection, but the Cyber Controller grabs him by the arm, crushing it and forcing him to his knees. The Cyber Controller then addresses the others, saying that, You belong to us, you shall be like us. Episode 3 Parry realises that the Cybermen had expected the arrival of humanity at some point, and so according to the Doctor, they based all their operational components of the machinery on logical algorithms, thereby ensuring that they would only be awoken by the smartest minds. Jamie suggests that they would make a run for it, but the Doctor says that they wouldn't get very far, and instead says to the group that he would try and buy some time. He goes to the Cyber Controller and asks why the Cybermen froze themselves. The Cyber Controller says that it was a matter of survival after their two previous encounters with the Doctor had left them near extinction. He informs the group that they will be converted into Cybermen to be used as an invasion force to take over Earth. Parry protests the plan, but he is ignored as the Cybermen begin to advance on the group. Jamie makes a break for it and manages to get to the hatch ladder, but he is shocked into unconsciousness by one of his pursuers. Meanwhile, Toberman also tries to resist, but his efforts are rewarded with him being thrown into a nearby stack of stasis pods where he lies unconscious. Back in the upper chamber, Victoria returns with Hopper and one of his men and insists that they open the hatch to let the others out. However, Hopper is reluctant to do so as he doesn't want to bring any more undue danger upon them. He asks her how the hatch was closed in the first place and she informs him that it was Kaftan, who is recovered and is now feigning unconsciousness. 
When he still refuses to help, Victoria says that she will pull every lever on the control panel in an effort to free the others, and this spurs Hopper to help her. As they are looking for the correct lever, Captain comes to and picks up the gun and tells the others to move away from the console until Cleeg messages her. Victoria pretends that the Cybermat is alive and screams, distracting Captain long enough for Hopper and his colleague Callum to apprehend her. Hopper and Victoria then manage to open the hatch and Hopper decides to go down to the others, taking a few smoke bombs with him. Victoria demands to go with him but he refuses, telling her it is too dangerous. In the tombs, Cleeg is informed by the Cyber Controller that he will be the leader of the Earthbound Cybermen a fact that he initially seems pleased with until he discovers that he will be converted into a Cyberman himself. The others are told that they will be placed into cryogenic sleep to await their fates. Suddenly, the room fills with smoke from one of Hopper's grenades and he rushes in, telling the others to follow him. Klee gets separated from them, but he still manages to get away whilst the dazed Toberman is recaptured, where he is repeatedly shocked so as to be rendered unconscious. The Cyber Controller takes notes of his power and says that he could be useful. The others, with the exception of Klieg, manage to escape back into the main chamber, but just as the Doctor is making his way out of the hatch, a Cyberman grabs him by the leg and starts to pull him back down the ladder. Jamie and Hopper struggle to rescue him, and Victoria picks up a nearby flask to club the Cyberman with. The Cyberman then grabs at her, thereby allowing the Doctor to escape and the hatch to be closed down on top of it. The Cyberman attempts in vain to break through the hatch before retreating back into the tomb. Once all the Cybermen are gone back down into the tomb, Klieg climbs up the ladder and knocks on the hatch. The doctor suggests that due to the softness of the knocking that it is most likely Klieg or Toberman trying to get in. Hopper is reluctant to open it but Parry says that they must let them in even if they are murderers to save them from the Cybermen. They open the hatch to let Klieg who informs them that Toberman is still a captive but amazingly he refuses to give up on his plans to ally with the Cybermen. The doctor suggests that Klieg and Captain be confined in the hypnosis room and Callum takes them away. Hopper departs to go check on the repairs up to the rocket, saying that the hatch should protect him from the Cybermen. In the tombs, the Cyber Controller orders that some of the more mature Cybermats be activated to target Toberman's brain, but they are still dormant due to their long time in hibernation. After revitalizing them and using them on Toberman, he orders the Cybermats to attack the main chamber. Meanwhile, Klieg and Kaftan remove the gun from the hands of the practice Cybermen and get it working. Klieg then states his intention to use it to blackmail the Cybermen into his service, a plan that Kaftan is in complete agreement with. However, first they must deal with the others, especially the Doctor. Back in the main chamber, the Doctor and Victoria have a heart-to-heart discussion whilst the others are asleep. They discuss Victoria's sadness over the death of her father, and the Doctor shares with her the coping mechanisms for how he deals with the loss of his own family. He then tells her to get some rest, and he keeps an eye on the hatch. Suddenly, the Cybermats invade the room, and the Doctor raises the alarm saving a sleeping Callum before one of them can kill him. They try to make a break for freedom, but all the exits are blocked off by the Cybermats. The Doctor orders everyone to get back into the control room and then labels a circle of cabling around their position. Once everyone is in the circle, he throws a switch that electrifies the floor, causing the Cybermats to deactivate. Suddenly, Victoria reminds them about Klieg and Kaftan, and the group goes to check up on them. However, after they arrive, Klieg shoots at the Doctor. Episode 4 Callum pushes the Doctor out of the way at the last second and takes the blast on the shoulder. Klieg then disarms the others and Kaftan says that they will make good specimens for the Cybermen. Klieg then opens the hatch and calls down that he wishes to speak with the Cyber Controller. The Cyber Controller informs the other Cybermen that they will need to conserve their energy and so orders them back into their stasis pots. Meanwhile, he wakes up Toberman, who is now partially cyberized and under his control, and together they ascend to the main chamber. Klieg holds them at gunpoint, saying that he knows the Cybermen are running low on energy and voices his intention to blackmail them into his service. 
He also demands that Toberman, who is now completely mute and non-resistant, to be released, but before he does so, the Cyber Controller shares a telepathic order with him. The Cyber Controller then agrees to Cleek and Catlin's demands, and in return is allowed to revitalise itself. Cleek sends them in with the Cyber Controller, whilst keeping Victoria with him as a hostage. He then orders Toberman to close the hatch, but Catlin ends up doing it when Toberman doesn't respond. In the revitalisation room, the Doctor notices that the Cyber Controller seems to be moving progressively slower as its energy levels drop. The Doctor offers to help revitalise it, but it is actually a ruse to trap it in the pod. However, once the pod is sealed, the revitalization process begins almost immediately, and so Jamie ties ropes around it to keep it sealed. However, the now fully powered cyber controller bursts free of the pod and then sends a telepathic message to Toberman. Back in the main chamber, Victoria tries to make Cleek and Catlin see that the Cybermen won't obey them, but it doesn't work and instead informs them about seeing another discarded Cyberman weapon in the revitalization room. Catlin says that they need to be wary in case any of the others manage to get it working, and Cleek orders Toberman to stand watch over the door. However, Toberman attacks him instead and disarms him, just as the others and the cyber controller enter the room. It orders Captain to open the hatch, but she refuses and uses her own gun to attack the cyber controller. It does no damage and the cyber controller uses Cleeg's gun to kill her before opening the hatch and summoning the Cybermen up. The Doctor appeals to Toberman to help them, using Captain's death as a motivator, and so he attacks the cyber controller and throws it into the control panel, severely damaging it. The Doctor points out that the Cybermen are starting to come up the hatch and Jamie uses the cyber gun to kill them before they can come into the chamber. He then says that the coast is clear and Victoria urges them to close the hatch but the Doctor says he needs to go into the tombs to ensure the Cybermen will never get out again. He tells Jamie to stay with Victoria and he begs Toberman to help him saying that the Cybermen are responsible for Kaftan's death and they will need to be destroyed. They then make their way down the hatch whilst the others tend to the wounded Callum. As they do this, no one notices Cleeg retrieve the cyber gun and follow the Doctor and Toberman. Down in the tombs, the Doctor and Toberman observe the Cybermen sleeping in their stasis pods. Toberman, in his fury, starts to smash some of the machinery, but the Doctor stops him and instead asks him to keep an eye on them whilst he restarts the refreezing process. Cleeg arrives and orders him away at gunpoint, and he begins to reverse the process to wake them up. He states that with the cyber controller dead, the rest of the Cybermen will bow down to his superior intellect. He then notices the Doctor trying to signal to someone behind him, and he then threatens to kill the Doctor unless the unseen person comes out. Jamie enters the room, and Cleeg forces them all over to one side of the room. The Doctor starts to flatter Cleeg and inflate his ego by telling him that he could rule the universe with the aid of the Cybermen, a fact that Cleeg easily or easily agrees with. However, it is merely a ploy to gauge Cleeg's level of sanity. Cleeg rails against both the Doctor's and Jamie's goading and threatens to kill them, but instead decides to let the Cybermen deal with him. Suddenly, a Cyberman attacks Cleeg from behind and kills him. It then goes to the control panel to awaken its brethren, but Toberman starts to fight with it, allowing the Doctor and Jamie to begin the freezing process. Toberman gains the upper hand in the fight and crushes the control unit of the Cyberman, causing it to dissolve. They then watch as the tomb start to fully freeze over again. Meanwhile, in the main chamber, Hopper returns to let the others know that the ship is fully repaired, but says he won't go back down into the tombs to help the others. This earns him a backhanded compliment from Victoria. However, the others appear through the hatch and the Doctor goes to the control panel and he rewires the locking mechanisms so that anyone touching either the main door, the hatch or the control panel itself will receive a substantial electric shock, but not enough to be fatal. He tells the others to go outside, but Jamie remains behind to assist him. As they are ensuring the hatch is fully secure, the cyber controller gets up, forcing them to flee out of the main door. They try to seal the main door, locking the cyber controller in and completing the electric circuit. The others try to help them by using poles to close the door, but the cyber controller is too strong and starts to push the doors open again until Toberman intervenes. 
Despite the doctor's pleas to save himself, Toberman sacrifices his life to close the doors and in doing so kills the cyber controller as well. Everyone mourns the loss of Toberman before going their separate ways. Jamie asks if it's truly the end of the Cybermen, and the doctor responds that it could be, but he doesn't like to make predictions. As they leave, none of them notice the Cybermat making its way towards Toberman's corpse. End of the story. So now that is the story recapped and the first fully intact story in quite a while, uh, we're going to go over to the trivia spot with Trisha. So what do you got for us? So the air date for this first story of season five was the 2nd of September 1967 to the 23rd of September 1967. Our writing duo for this story is Kit Peddler and Jerry Davis, both of whom we have discussed before. Mm -hmm. This is Kit's final writing credit for Who. Though he does have a few more sort of contribution credits, but not any like straight out writing credits. Mm -hmm. Jerry Davis, we still have one more story to discuss for him, which is Revenge of the Cybermen, which we won't be talking about for a long, long while yet. Yeah, at least another, what, a year by my reckoning? Almost I'd a year? I'd say about that. I'd say yeah. about that, yeah. The director for the story is Morris Barry. We, again, we previously discussed Morris before when we talked about the moon base, which he also directed. This is the earliest second Doctor story to survive in its entirety, as you alluded to a while ago. We have no animation this time. We have no recreations. It is our full cast straight through from beginning to end. And it's crazy to think that this is the earliest since like Ben and Polly have come and gone. Yeah. And this is our first continuous story. This is also the only story of season five that is not six episodes yeah, it's one thing now that I've, because I just finished watching The Ice Warriors, which will be done in two weeks' time. And, like, yeah, like, like the six-episode six kind of arc is, it's an unusual format, seeing as how with Hartnell it was kind of up and down and all over the place. Yeah, I wonder, like, you know, they're trying to find the perfect, you know, the perfect number of episodes yeah. to tell a story. This story um, had several working titles, including The Ice Tombs of Talos and The Cybermen Planet. I like The Ice Tombs of Talos. That sounds like a cool title. It, it, it does. And as well, like it kind of keeps in with the motif that every Cyberman story so far hasn't had the title of Cyberman in it. Yeah, and that was actually something I was going to get to later on. Like This is the first story to actually include Cyberman in the title. Hmm. Although it does set up what's going to be a... Uh, semi-regular naming convention for the Cybermen stories where it becomes of the Cybermen. Like, that doesn't happen for all Cybermen stories going forward. It's kind of a semi-regular thing. Unlike Dalek stories where Daleks are, like, nearly always mentioned. Yeah, I think the chase... The chase is probably the only one. Yeah. And like, which is, a, like... I remember, I think I discussed it with you and other people, that when the show um, was uh, revived, they, there's an episode called Dalek, which is like the first introduction of Daleks into the revised format. And I'm like, that's like a, as big a spoiler as you can possibly get to reintroducing <laughs> this thing, you know? Yeah. Um, and like, obviously, you know, there's the whole thing of like, oh, I know what the story is going to be about. But there is enough, there's something to be said as well for just because you have, you know who's going to be in it doesn't really indicate as to what the story is going to be about. Mm. 
like we saw last uh, last week with Evil of the Daleks, the amount of red herrings in that story. <laughs> <laughs> the red herrings of the Daleks. <laughs> uh, this story also introduced the cyber controller and the cyber mats. We have not seen those before. The cyber mats were controlled in a variety of means. Some were on wires, some were basically clockwork, like wind-up toys. Some were the sort of you know, the toys that the kid were like you drag it back and let it go. Yeah. <laughs> some were those and some were radio controlled. Now we mentioned last week that um the Dalek controllers weren't very nice to Deborah Watling, should we put it that way? Yeah. And they used to chase her around. Yeah, the Cybermat radio controllers were similar. And when they weren't filming, they would chase her around the set with them. <laughs> These people are assholes. <laughs> <laughs> Toberman was actually originally intended to be deaf, uh, hence his lack of significant speech in the script. The idea would be that he'd have a hearing aid mm. that would foreshadow his partial transformation into a Cyberman. Um, and in the novelization, we actually get to see that included in it, mm. which I think would have been an interesting way. It sort of reminds me of, again, the revival um, when we see Cyberman again, the way they sort of foreshadow that with. Certain yeah, it was certain things. Although things. that would have been, I think. No, I don't know whether it was a conscious um, choice or not. But that would have been two, pers- uh, was it people of color strongman characters with some sort of sensory impairment, in a row. Well, we don't know if um, last week's guy, like last, he didn't have a sensory impairment because he could vocalize because he made noise when he died. He just didn't speak. Mm, I suppose, yeah, because I, I think it's like it's just implied that he is mute. But then again, like, um, yeah, because it didn't go to the ins and outs of it. I'd like to see that. I would like to see the novelization of that story yeah. to see if it's mentioned. Yeah, it probably would have been a bit much to have two stories back to back, though. Yeah, um, with that, Deborah Watling has admitted that the scene where Victoria gets sealed inside the sort of Cyberman revitalization sarcophagus thingy mm-hmm. was actually really hard for her because she's claustrophobic. I can totally relate to that. Oh, like. Absolutely, because like the revitalization chamber, it's essentially like it's the cutout of a Cyberman. So it's almost like, you know, a mold. Mm. And if she was in that, that's all the major movement that she would have, as opposed to like, you know, it being a box and she could kind of wiggle around in. Yeah. So that's way worse, you know. Mm. You mentioned in your recap, uh, at one point, the doctor and Jamie accidentally hold hands. Mm. Um, that was actually Patrick Charton and Fraser Hines came up with the idea for that. And they didn't bother telling the director. They just did it. So, like, you know, we've spoken before, like, the shooting schedule for Doctor Who hmm. didn't allow a lot of time to cut, start again. So they just did it without telling anyone. So they have to keep it in. Which reminds me of a similar story from a future Doctor. Where, again, it's sort of, this would be funny. Yeah. Don't ask permission. Just do it. Just do it. And because of this particular gag shipping was you know started for the for the doctor and the second doctor and jamie i'm pretty sure it probably started a little bit before this but i'm sure it comes in very heavily i, I think uh I, what i know definitely is that one image that is used in the whole shipping of the, the doctor and jamie is the still from the faceless ones where they're hiding from the policeman at the, at the very first episode mm. and like you kind of got jamie kind of huddled underneath the doctor like so i think that was probably the start of it <laughs> <laughs> Um, Matt Smith, who will eventually play the 11th Doctor in 50 million years from now for us, 
um, has said that the Tomb of the Cybermen is one of his favorite Doctor Who stories. Yeah, I actually remember reading that that um, when he was trying to get a feel for how he wanted his version of the Doctor to be, he said that this was the story that really kind of made a huge impact on his choices. Mm. And like it, it even like some of his like you know aesthetics, like you know his whole thing of wearing the bow tie. The Patrick Chown's Doctor always wore a bow tie, even though it's a bit more scruffy. Um, so it's actually kind of cool to see that even in the revised uh, sorry the revived era you're still pulling all these things from the classic side of things to form your character mm. on to our cast so as Hopper we have George Rubicek I'm going to go with Rubicek uh, if you know makes no sense um, this is his only Doctor Who acting credit his non-Who credits include You Only Live Twice The Dirty Dozen Billion Dollar Brain Star Wars, where I knew he looked familiar. He is the either incredibly stupid or like secret rebel agent spy Imperial officer who decided not to blow up the escape pod that had R2 and 3P on it. Yeah, and they take the piss out of the family guy. Oh, are we saving on lasers now? Does it cost, you know, to shoot? <laughs> yeah, so he played that particular Imperial officer and he was also in The Spy Who Loved Me. Kleeg is played by George Pastel. This is the only Doctor Who acting credit for George. His non-Who acting credits include Interpol Calling, Ghost Squad, From Russia With Love, The Indian Tales of Rudyard Kipling, Zedkars, and The Saint. I I had to look, because uh, it uh, piqued my interest, I had to look up who George Rubicek is in The Dirty Dozen. He is the, at the very start of the movie, he's the prisoner that gets hung. And uh, Lee Marvin watches it. Uh, in uh, But as for George Pastel, I know who he is again from Russia with Love. He is a train conductor that James Bond hires to keep a murder secret. <laughs> I even know the dialogue, he says. Because <laughs> it's stuck in my head with that voice of his. George Pastel passed away back in 1976. Kaftan is played by Shirley Cooklin. Again, Shirley's only Doctor Who acting credit. She was actually married to new producer Peter Bryant. And her character was written specifically for her by Jerry Davis. Interesting onset thing was that Fraser Hines, you know, flirted with her a bit, not realizing that she was his boss's wife. Which is <laughs> <laughs> <sighs> just adorable. Uh, her other acting credits include Children of the New Forest, The Adventures of Sir Lancelot, Paul Temple, a TV series, ver- TV series version of Macbeth, and Zedkars again. Toberman is played by Roy Stewart. This is the first of two Doctor Who acting credits for Roy. We will see him again in The Terror of the Autons. He also had an uncredited role as a Saracen in The Crusade. His other acting credits include The Count of Monte Cristo TV series, Adam Adamant Lives, The Avengers, and Julius Caesar. Roy passed away back in 2008. The Cyber Controller is played by Michael Kilgariff. We will see Michael again in future stories, including Robot. Morris Barry really wanted Kilgariff in this role. Like, Michael Kilgariff is incredibly tall, right? When we get to Robot, there's a very cute story about Elizabeth Sladen's daughter mm-hmm. when she met him. But he's an incredibly tall guy in general. So these sort of, like, the type, the cyber controller is like a head taller than everyone else. He's a good role for that. So Kilgariff knew nothing about Doctor Who or the Cybermen. And when Morris Barry came to him, he, he was completely surprised to learned that like he'd be in the silver suit and that it'd be fully covered up um but it took him about three days to decide that he would actually have the role he also didn't realize that he wouldn't have any lines so like that t- that took a lot to sort of parse through his brain before he 
continued uh, or agreed to take the role. But we'll discuss um, Michael more in the future because we're going to be seeing him again. And I have one other small piece of uh, trivia back mm. in relation to Royce, uh, Royce Stewart. I knew I recognised him from something. Uh, he's in uh, Roger Moore's first Bond movie, Live and Let Die. He plays the son of a previous James Bond ally back in the very first Bond movie in Dr. No. Mm. Yeah. So thus ends the trivia spot and now we're on to our character discussion. So as always we have the doctor, the companions and the villains. So Paddy I'm going to turn it over to you for our first full story of Patrick Troughton. What did you think of the doctor this time around? Um, so I absolutely loved him. Uh, I have I, One of my notes here is that he's doing his best Jack Burton impression. Uh, Jack Burton is a character from a movie that I love Big Trouble in China which again is the whole thing of you know oh my god you can come back and gain power from beyond the grave or you know get checked into a psycho ward whichever comes first <laughs> and so like when he does that with Cleek it's like oh my god with the Cybermen you could rule the universe right now I know you're insane <laughs> um, I love that part and I'm really glad that this story survived or at least there's one section of it that I'm really glad that survived is his heart to heart with Victoria over mm. discussing like because like she kind of says like you're like you're you're old you probably can't remember your family and he's like oh well, no I, I can't remember if I want to but I have to really focus and really picture it and it's like that's heartbreaking because he's he's alluding to not just Susan he's alluding to the other members of the family yeah I do wonder so I think that's a beautiful scene yeah by the way and I know you were waiting for me to finish watching it to get my opinion <laughs> yeah and I nearly told you to F off that we have this discussion that's <laughs> recorded for a reason and you can't yeah. get spoilers. Yeah. But I love the fact that he took the time to have that conversation with her. Yeah. Um, and that he shows some very like genuine concern that she's okay being with them mm-hmm. because it wasn't really her choice. And unlike our other companions that have traveled like unlike Vicky for example Vicky didn't really have a choice yeah do you know what I mean she was on this planet by herself mm. whereas Victoria's safety and well-being was entrusted to the doctor by her father in the previous episode yeah so I think it's very sweet the thing that I find with him saying you know oh you know I have to try to remember them and blah blah, blah. I wonder how much of that is him being truthful and how much of that is him just saying what she needs to hear because she clearly makes a big thing of his age. It's yeah. kind of like her little running joke throughout the mm. throughout the whole story. The fact that he's like 450 years old. But he's not the same as an older human would be. Yeah. Do you know? So I don't think he needs to try to mm. remember Susan. I don't think that he needs to make a concerted effort to remember people. Personally, I think that he was just saying that stuff for her benefit mm-hmm. i don't know if he actually at this point in his life i don't know if that was true for him i think he knew that eventually it would get to that point but i don't think that was true at this point in his life no that's a good point because like again you know it's one of those things where like, we're kind of seeing especially since the last story like the doctor isn't above you know misdirection and you know sometimes outright lying um so yeah like and you know like the scenario here is like kind of different because like he could have very well tried and dropped her 
uh, back to you know Root Maxtable because you know they were obviously mm. friends, so she could have lived with Root and helped look after Arthur and stuff like that. Um, but I know I just I really liked it. I thought it was a fantastic thing, and like we've seen so much versatility from Patrick Troughton that this was just I think kind of rounding off his complete like range as in terms of like okay we've seen him be the buffoon we've seen him be the slightly sinister we've seen her be the manipulative we've seen him be like the kind of the humorous here is like the softer side and like it's like we saw it with pa- uh, again with William Hartnell in his like kind of little moments with you know Victoria and with Barbara and even with uh, Kame- Kameka from back in the Aztecs um, so again just kind of keeping that tradition of like f- he the doctor is more than just what he's what he is on the outside you know mm. i think I, I was trying to compare this back to bill and i think the closest thing that comes to this for me with bill was actually his monologue at the Anthony end of the, the massacre, massacre. I, yeah i'd feel that you were going to say it because he's never ha- like bill didn't have these conversations like doc bill didn't have these conversations with anybody he could mm-hmm. be very gentle with people. Like he was very gentle with Kameka. Mm-hmm. And obviously he had his sit down talk with Barbara at the end of Edge. Yeah. But this is very different. Mm. Do you know, this is a purely emotional, heartfelt conversation out of concern, which Doc Bill didn't. It's not that Doc Bill wasn't concerned. He was, but he was the stiff upper lip yeah. older gentleman. He didn't have those conversations yeah so it's very nice to see that in this iteration of the doctor he's more open with that mm-hmm. and he's more open to those connections he's not as standoffish as doc bill would have been um because like i said the closest we have to doc bill having a conversation like this is when he's talking to himself yeah <laughs> or even like when he was saying goodbye to susan yeah he was talking at her not with her yeah it's like it, it kind of does bring back I think I said about Power of the Daleks it was like that you're kind of giving this impression of you know always like a Jekyll and Hyde scenario where this is like some other aspects of the Doctor coming out and it, in a way it kind of is like because this is like he's almost unguarded and mm. he, he's no longer like I won't say worried but he's no longer adverse to having these type of conversations with the people he travels with yeah and like a thing that I find with the Doctor or even like right up to now like we're currently you know on the 13th Doctor with Jodie Whittaker I think that I find the whole way up is that, you know, people say, oh, the doctor's different or the doctor's changed or whatever. And I don't think the doctor ever does change. I think the way we see each doctor represented is it's showing parts of the whole. Um, you know, often our human characters present as more complex than the doctor ever does. Mm-hmm. You know, we see more uh, highs and lows with our human characters than we do with the Doctor. And so the regeneration is a great way to showcase that, you know, he slash she, they, whichever pronoun is best for the Doctor mm-hmm. in his entire lifetime, um, does have all of these sides, but doesn't always show them. Yeah. Do you know? Like we said, that Doc Bill didn't really show fear. Yeah, it's not to say he was never afraid. Like, oh, no. so I, I quite like that, and I quite like the fact that Troutons is so different in yeah. terms of 
exposing himself emotionally. Yeah. And like, I suppose just one last point there about Doc Bill was that like, you know, yeah, he would never show fear, but you knew that you knew that he was afraid, even though he wouldn't mm. show it. Like a good example, I think, is the end of Dalek's master plan when he's like he gives out to Sarah Kingdom for staying behind with him when he yeah. explicitly said, just go because he knows what's about to happen. But it is again, like, you know, I won't, like refreshing is the wrong word, but it's just a, it's a joy to see the versatility in the character, you know? Mm. And yeah. like throughout the entirety of the last season, and we're sitting off like a really strong uh, start to this new season. Patrick Troughton is like just filling the role perfectly. I think. Yeah, for me, I think this is. It was lovely for me to get to see his actual his his first full story. Yeah. Um, end to end. Like, I've I've mentioned before that the only Patrick Troughton story I had watched before we started this watch through. Mm-hmm. Was, uh, War Games. Yeah, which I think is complete. You know, it is. It's fully complete. Yeah. Um, but that's his final story, and I watched that ten years ago. Yeah. <laughs> so I don't remember a whole lot from it, to be honest. <laughs> so f- to get to see now his first full story end to end is great. I think this was a very strong story for that. Mm-hmm. I do have one criticism. <laughs> yeah. I always seem to have have criticisms for Doc Pat. If you don't want them to get into the tomb, yeah. Don't tell them all of the answers. That was the thing, because like he kind of he says to Jamie, like you're like I tried to give him enough rope to hang himself with, and now it's completely horrendously backfired. And I'm like, sometimes you just, are just you stop are doing that. <laughs> just just keep your mouth shut. Right? I was like, sometimes you are a fucking idiot. But I wonder if part of that, and this is all going back to like the different sides and different components of the Doctor. I wonder if that is just him showing off. He likes being the smartest man in the room. Mm. And to see people struggling with something, I wonder if it's almost like this compulsion. <laughs> that, like he has to he has to show that he knows exactly what it is. And then he tries to hide it behind, oh well, I just showed them to see how much they could figure out by themselves. It's like yeah, it's it kind of like it kind of brings back to when you know Zaroff in the Underwater Menace, and it was like you know, so what is your plan? I was like, interesting, but you do realize that that could lead to this. You're still going with that, fair enough. <laughs> yeah, um, but sometimes like don't give them answers they don't already have. Yeah, yeah. but uh, yeah, so please stop doing that. And I know that like you know the payoff in terms of humor is fantastic with the whole you know, my God, you could be all powerful. Well, now I know you're crazy, so it's just. <laughs> Uh, but yeah another like just again a fantastic performance by him yeah totally agree so now we're on to the companions so we have Jamie Victoria and Hopper Mm. so we do Jamie first I suppose Um, I I've mentioned this in I mentioned it in the faceless ones and I mentioned it again last week I'm going to mention it again because I think this story has sort of brought that point to a natural uh, conclusion I'm loving that we're continuously Jamie's acclamation to future tech mm-hmm. and the fact that it's not a problem yeah he doesn't always know what he's doing but no. he's fully capable of going oh yeah yeah I'll do these levers and yeah you stand there and do the block your eyes thing with the hypno screen and I'll do this and he's perfectly able to man a console to explain to Victoria what they're doing where they're going like, he can 
he's absorbing so much and learning so much as he goes that he may not understand everything, but he's able to live in it without any um issue. Hmm. Do you know? Yeah. Which I think is great because I mean that's a concern when you have a character from further back in the past than when the show airs. Yeah. That's a concern, like, oh, how are they going to deal with the future tech and stuff? And I love how it's basically a non-issue with Jamie. There's a few, like, cultural and technological advancements that he's not familiar with. But, Mm -hmm. like, he's not afraid of any of it. And it doesn't really become a blocker to him. So I like how we continue to see that in the story. And one of the things that I... (laughs) There's, like, two things in this that i particularly loved the first was the fact that like almost from the minute they arrive and jamie finds out that it's cyberman yeah he clearly wants to fucking leave yeah and like every like, when the doctor's like okay if you don't want to be in the room leave and he's like not you jamie and jamie's just like oh, for fuck's sake <laughs> it's like he resigns himself to the fact that he has to be there hmm. but he really doesn't want to and you can just tell it on his face or he's just like sake yeah he's like it's just like this whole thing of like you know he would he's the kind of guy that would go through a choose your own adventure book but read every ending before he made the, the decisions in which way he wanted to go you know i was like nope not having this not having this not having this oh cool we're off to the ice cream factory i like it yeah and like his dynamic with the doctor is becoming so good hmm. um particularly after after the rocky conversations they had last week hmm. um but like his reaction to the doctor's metal breakdown pun was brilliant. Yeah. <laughs> but he's just like, oh, for fuck's sake. Um, but the fact that he can recognize that that's a pun. Yeah. And sort of have an eye roll moment kind of shows it. Um, but also like the fact that he's like, you know, did you tie the knots properly, Jamie? Oh, yeah, yeah. No one's getting out of that. Crash. Cyberman gets out. I really need to teach you how to tie knots, Jamie. <laughs> <laughs> They're such a great double act. They are. They are a fantastic double act. You know, and it's not just Jamie being dragged along. He's an active component in it, hmm. which is brilliant. Whereas, like, I, I, I liked the Doctor and Vicky together. Yeah, but Vicky almost got dragged along with the Doctor a lot of the time. Do you know? Yeah. Whereas Jamie's like an active participant in their friendship. <laughs> Yeah, no, like big time, like because you're seeing about the Vicky being dragged along. It's like almost like you know the Crusade, where it was like Vicky is just kind of there. Yeah. Whereas like here, you know, Jamie is like uh, the McCrimmon effect is definitely in effect here because like, you know it's like I'll I'll open the doors and everyone just kind of looks at me. It was like you know, well, you know, it's you know like shut up. I <laughs> <laughs> um, I no, I really really enjoyed that. Um, what else was there? He's kind of back and forth uh, again with the doctor and Victoria it's really good it's just like the whole and again like the holding hand part it was just funny like it's like both of them hold up their hands to take Victoria and then they just grab each other's hands and it's like that whole Ugh. <laughs> yeah we did we did finally get to something that you've quoted several times over the years mm. which was when uh, Victoria was saying like isn't the skirt a bit short and the doctor's yeah. like you're fine look at Jamie's yeah exactly <laughs> and he's like yeah well, yeah. no wait what <laughs> oh like there, there's got to be some stuff coming up with that kilt that I just I, I crack off at um, but I, 
there's a like obviously like a lot a lot of people know about Doctor Who is that you know oh like the companions and they only ever see the female companions and there's like the whole thing of you know female companions scream or whatever the case is and like obviously we've discussed that and we've shown that that's not always the case back with you know people like Barbara and Polly and uh, Vicky to an extent and even like Susan like you had her like you know, we talked about Susan and her up and down moments mm. but I think the earlier male companions they 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 get looked over. I think male companions get looked over in general. So like, I was trying to think, and I don't want to blame one doctor for that being the case. But if I had to blame one doctor for that being the case, it's Pertwee. Yeah. Because Pertwee was the James Bond doctor, yeah. and he had the Bond girls. And I think a lot of people, because of the change over to colour, and because of the fact that like we don't have any missing episodes after that point, I think a lot of people, because Pertwee was their first, yeah, the Doctor with one female companion sort of became... The, became the standard. Became the standard, do you know? Yeah. And, you know, after that, we do have male companions, but, like, Pertwee didn't have a single male companion. He had Eunice, mm-hmm. but they weren't his companions. Yeah. Do you know? And the fact that, like, he described them as, like, his assistant and, and all this kind of stuff. So I think... Oh, I think a lot of that falls on at the feet of John Pertwee. John Pertwee and like Barry Letts and Terence Dix to, uh, to an extent. But you're going back to Jamie in our original point. I think like he, Jamie, like Jamie proves that like okay, one we said that historical character can work as part of the crew, but also that you can have like a really good male companion in there, and he mm. can he can help bolster the. Because opposed to being the secondary companion, he can be the primary companion. Yeah. And it doesn't get old, you know? Mm. I think as well, what we see, and like this story, and like, except there are few sort of, we saw it a lot last week as well, but particularly in this story, since they've gotten over the issues from last week, hmm. is that the companions up to now, with the exception of Susan, mm-hmm. have been traveling companions yeah and the doctor has had a sort of fatherly or grandfatherly or like quirky uncle yeah type dynamic jamie and doc pat are friends yeah because that that's the thing is like jamie gave up he, he gave up like the rest of his life essentially when he made the decision to help them get back to the tardis back mm-hmm. uh, near culloden and like this this is his life now so yeah it is essentially the doctor and jamie his his gal friday essentially yeah but uh, like as opposed to just being like a traveling companion oh yeah, like yeah. steven was a traveling companion yeah um jamie and doc pat they're actually friends yeah and you can see they have a friendship and not just a companionable relationship mm. if that makes sense no 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 absolutely that makes 100 percent sense uh one last note i have about jamie is his like there's that scene where he picks up the Cyberman's gun and he just kind of starts firing at the Cyberman as they come at the hatch. And it's like again, it's not something like it's it's different for Jamie, I think, in, because like we've had people that would have had different reactions to that sort of action. Was like where was it with Ben? There mm. was this is a necessity, you know. I I'm doing this to protect people. Whereas with Jamie, because Jamie was raised like in a he is a warrior essentially. I don't think he has second thoughts about picking up a thing. No. He do, he doesn't have the after effects of it. And that doesn't... I don't think it makes him any less of a character or an interesting character to talk about than Ben. B- 
because it'll be interesting to see where that sort of mentality could work against what the doctor is trying to do in the given story yeah like it's not that jamie enjoys it but that he's comfortable enough to do the action without second guessing himself yeah exactly cool so victoria next yeah so victoria has surprised me Mm. in this story Um, and i'm really hoping she continues to surprise me similar to polly I had a vision of Victoria in my mind mm-hmm. where it's Jamie and the doctor have to take care of Victoria. I don't know why I have that in my head. I don't know if it's just a cultural, like a Doctor Who fandom accepted norm I, for Victoria. I think it's a fact that a lot of the promotional images you would ever see of Deborah Watling as Victoria is her in the screaming pose. Yeah. So it's, I suppose it's that mental kind of assumption that oh this is all she ever does yeah i'm very i was very surprised in the story how much i loved her in the story Mm. it was a very strong moment for her yeah she has moments where she's afraid like she didn't want to go into the tomb in the fucking first place no um she's clearly you know she'll scream and she screams in a very in a very 1800s kind of way. Yeah. <laughs> Which makes sense because that's where she's from. <laughs> yeah. Um, but she also shows great bravery and she clearly doesn't want to be considered weak. Several times we see her standing up to people saying, no, I'm not fucking staying behind. What are you talking about? Yeah. I want to go with you as well. Um, she gets stuck right away. She was willing to use a gun with no hesitation whatsoever. Mm-hmm. Um, it takes down the cybermat. I love... I like I was laughing my ass off like she assessed the situation this woman has lost her fucking mind <laughs> and drugged me and everything the hatch is closed I'll run off and get Hopper and so yeah. she, she runs away to get Hopper and the conversations she has with him and his second in command are so fucking funny <laughs> it's brilliant because she's clearly getting so exasperated with them yeah. <laughs> it's like don't, don't call me Vic what yeah. the hell is wrong oh uh, like absolutely because like I, I, I'm the same as you right and I remember when I watched these stories about 10 years ago my takeaway from it was that Victoria's like the token screaming companion mm. um, now that's not to say that look you know obviously she does scream at certain points Mm. but but as we've always said it's not the screaming that is the takeaway it's what they do after the that scream after the scream after the scream Uh, and that's what you look into like what makes that character who they are and so here it's like you know victoria is you know she screams whatever but then picks up a gun shoots a a cybermat not a bother to her sees the doctor uh being grabbed by a cyberman picks up a, a flask and start and mm. hits the cyberman with it i fucking i was a nuts when they're preparing they're all standing around the hatch in preparation for what's coming up and she just picks up a bigger box and it's just like what did you learn from the last time something bigger <laughs> it's just, it's just like, i thought that was great um like i also laughed at you know the whole thing she was worried about the clothes that she had picked and i'm like I'm pretty sure the TARDIS has got a big enough wardrobe to have something that to your aesthetic. So you can't really complain about the clothes that you picked being 
a bit much. I don't think she was complaining. I think she was just concerned that she clearly picked something that she thought was nice. Yeah. And then she was slightly concerned she'd overdone it. <laughs> Do you know? I suppose. Yeah. It, it actually reminded me of this is going to sound so bizarre. From my confirmation, hmm. I got this. Okay, I'm in my confirmation in the year 2000, right? So forgive 12 year old Trisha really bad fashion choices, right? I had this sort of. I bought this like velvety top skirt and cardigan combo. Mm-hmm. And the skirt was quite long and went down past my knee. I looked a bit silly. So I took it in to get it tailored to get it raised a little bit like above the knee so it wouldn't mm-hmm. look as stupid. And I remember like after picking it up, coming back home, putting on the really nice like giant wedge heel shoes that I'd gotten to go with it and coming down to show my parents. And my dad was just like, nope. He's like, when you kneel down in mass, that skirt is just going to ride right off. And he made me go out and buy something else to wear. Because because of the way the material of the velvet yeah. was, when they took it up, it actually it actually bunched up a bit further than they had anticipated. And this sort of reminded me of that, of just being like, okay, is the skirt long enough? <laughs> Do you know? Uh, you just like shift, uh, sh- uh, shift your own awkwardly. Uh, yeah. But I know I I enjoyed Victoria in this because, like, this is her first adventure with in the TARDIS, and she comes out of the gate strong. I think. Oh yeah, very strong story for her. What I love as well is I think it's Hopper at one point, actually gives her credit for screaming. <laughs> <laughs> her screaming actually serves a purpose at one point. <laughs> oh. I was like, you know, you did good to scream there because yeah. that was important. I like she's also she's got some sass on her as well like when like because Hopper's like going oh I'm not going down there to you know to risk my life and she and she just makes some kind of backhanded compliment going oh I'm sh- I'm sure that they're going to appreciate your uh, uh, you know situational observation or something like that yeah. oh what it was was that when she tricked your one into thinking there was another Cybermat yeah by screaming the same way she had the first time and then Hopper was like hey good good play with the scream that worked really well <laughs> it's like she clearly uh, knows how to use her how people perceive her hmm. it's similar to how Polly used to be able to do it but like this is really playing into the fact that like she can use her screaming as a distraction <laughs> which I, love. I thought was brilliant no yeah no I I like I, I liked her I, I liked her in this and so I'm hoping that that trend continues hmm. um now with the supporting characters like we have Hopper and even though Parry is there for a substantial he's there for the entirety of the story he does nothing no he, he doesn't he, he contributes he nothing he gives out that's about it yeah <laughs> he just contributes nothing so we just went with Hopper in terms of the story based companions um, what did you think of Hopper? Hopper and his first or his second in command the fucking accent Jesus Christ just like flashbacks to the gunfighters <laughs> like it's actually worse than the gunfighters. Hmm. Like, you know, nowadays, you know, you hear stories about how, like, the people who hired Hugh Laurie for House yeah. didn't realise he was English. Hmm. And there's a little bit of a thing of, like, English actors can do American accents, but American actors can't do English accents very well. It's hmm. sort of this stereotype yeah. or whatever. That was not true back in the 60s it is so 
over the top and like it almost sounds like it sounds like the two of them were doing a stage production of grief yeah it was so funny and over the top i didn't really have a whole lot to say about him other than that because it was so fucking distracting <laughs> we were just saying like, like you know like a stage production of grease like this would mean a whole new definition of a hickey from kanicki if that's the case <laughs> um one thing the only thing i that kind of made uh, hopper kind of an interesting character for me is you haven't watched like peter jackson's king kong have you i have you know the ship captain that like mm. you know brings him to the island like he's clearly a guy that does not like where they're going but i'm getting paid mm. i think he's very reminiscent of that character here yeah because the thing about him and that it's probably again like it was very the accent was very distracting. <laughs> very distracting. It's your last chance for that. It's your last. <laughs> no, it's no, no, yeah. it's not as bad as that. Yeah, it was just distracting. That was distracting because it was like a drill through my brain. Mm. This is distracting because it's funny and I was just laughing yeah. my ass off every time he opened his mouth. <laughs> um, but I love the fact that when they realize something's wrong, mm-hmm. he's just like, "I'm not your security." people like yeah. i'm not your security assembly that's what toberman was meant to be for yeah i'm the pilot mm-hmm. you rented my ship yeah. we flew here one of my guys already died fuck off yeah i'm gonna go and fix my ship mm-hmm. i don't care if there are things here trying to kill you you're the one who wanted to come and find them i'll come back and get you when the ship is fixed and he's just like he's perfectly happy to leave them there yeah, and like again, I thought it was like, I thought it was a really clever way to kind of keep the story focused in the tombs. It was like that going, look, you know, I'll take you out of here, but I don't trust you because someone sabotaged my ship. Um, I think the only reason why he came back to help is because Vicky kind of played the damsel in distress. Yeah. I think had it been anyone else who ran to him to get help, he probably would have been like, no. I'm fucking busy, like. Yeah. Something wrong with the ship, like I'm fucking shit to do, like. <laughs> oh no, Jesus. <laughs> and yeah, so we have Hopper as a, a hero or a companion, but maybe his accent should be a villain of the piece. I don't know. <laughs> oh. So on to our actual villains. Yep. We have Toberman. Mm-hmm. Captain, mm-hmm. Klieg, and the Cyberman. And I'd kind of rank them almost in that order. Yeah. In terms of least bad to worst bad. Worst, yes, worst bad. Um. So, what do you think of Toberman? Um, I thought he was interesting. I thought he was interesting. Um, because, like, he does like he sacrifices himself mm. to save the group at the end. But. It's not. I think it's rather than being an altruistic thing. I think it's to get revenge for Kaftan. I agree. Oh, one hundred percent. And like, it's always kind of funny, you know, when you have like villainous characters that are incredibly loyal to each other, because like you know, sometimes you get you know, it's almost like um, a cherub and Captain Pike thing from the Smugglers, where it was like mm-hmm. you know, I'll work with you just until like you know, it looks like I'm going to be the descendancy that I'm going to you know fucking pull the rug out from under you. So I do like it when the villains kind of are on the same page mm. and it's like 
you know, like Tobin is he is a villain like from the very start. Like you, know, he relishes the idea of sabotaging the ship or you know, f- fucking potentially killing people. Like he is like that hulking brute, and even like his voice is very deep, and it's like you know, yes, we're going to do this type thing. Um, I think Roy Stewart did a great job with the acting component of it because even though he's like the strong man of the the story, there is a time there where he actually is terrified. Mm. And I thought that was really well done. And his like you know, his rage, his anger, and again his self sacrifice at the end. Like, yeah, no, I I, I liked Toberman as a villain in this one, I think. Yeah. I had first written down that he was like a typical hired strongman. Mm-hmm. And I'm actually gonna retract I don't think that for the time I don't think he's the typical hired strongman, because that's what we had last week. Yeah. Toberman clearly loves his job. Yeah. Like, when they were talking about sabotaging the ship, he was standing there grinning like a fucking idiot. Yeah. Clearly, like I said, relishing the idea. And, like, anytime Captain gave him something to do, he clearly, like, there was no sort of, like, I'm indebted to her or she owns me or, like, they've paid so much for my services, I have to do what they say. Yeah, no. He's clearly very loyal. It's a, He's a cracked knuckles uh, hired hired hand you know yeah but like he's also like he's not just doing it because that's what he was hired to do yeah oh no but like, it's like you know he relishes his job like he relishes working for his boss so it's yeah. like you know that's what i mean like by a crack the knuckles type of person yeah I, I i do like his turnaround at the end because it's not a complete 180 mm-hmm. you know like we said you know he clearly shows great loyalty for kaftan yeah and in the end, that's what snaps him out of it. And like, it's the doctor that's using, like, the doctor recognizes that. It's like, if we're going to get Toberman on our side, we have to use his connection to Kaftan to yeah. get him on our side. But, like, he doesn't join our heroes as such. It becomes more of the enemy of my enemy type thing. Like, I think, had he been able to shut the doors at the end without dying, do you know? I. I don't think he would have gone off and, like, paired up with anyone else, like, do you know what I mean? He probably would have gone with Hopper to go home, but, like, it wouldn't have been, like, yay, we all survived together. Like, no, like, he's not friends with these people. (laughs) I know, I think he probably would have, he would have probably followed the Doctor and the others back to the TARDIS and then tried to kill them because he probably holds them responsible for Kaftan's death. Yeah, but like, I, I think all he would have tried to do is get away from where he was, like... Oh, yeah. Do you know what I mean? Big time, big time. Like, there would have been no, like... He wasn't redeemed. No. In my eyes. There wasn't a redemption there. He was redeemed from being a proto-Cyberman. Yes. Because he was, like, mid-changeover or whatever. He was redeemed from that. Yeah. And as I said, like his like sacrifice isn't altruistic. It's like I'm taking you with me, fucker type thing, you know. Yeah, um, I think for of all the strongman characters we've seen, mm-hmm. and particularly of our strongman people of color characters, because we've had a few of those that have been a bit stereotypical. Yeah, I think he's probably the most complex that we've had. And he, he had a character to play, not just a stereotype to play. It's funny, he's the most one-dimensional in the fact that he's an actual villain. He's an out-and-out villain, but he's complex in his 
Holds in his villainy. In, like, in his villainy. I think, you know, like, comparing him to, like, I said, some of the other people of colour characters that we've had up until now, who've actually been played by people of colour, as opposed yeah. to... Yeah. Whatever. He actually has a character, mm-hmm. as opposed to a stereotype, or as opposed to the silent person standing in the corner. He has lines. Mm-hmm. He has interactions with other people. He has a fully fleshed character was like last week as much as i loved um campbell campbell last week he didn't really have a character as such mm. but I, and again you know? it's because like of the fact that he i think dialogue goes a long way towards like i i'm a i'm a big believer that like kind of facial acting can get over a whole lot of stuff but you need to get a kind of a groundwork for how that character, how good that character is, with a small bit of dialogue thrown into it. And I think Kimball could have been good, but uh, and I, I said it like you know, like I think he would have made it for a very interesting companion, but not for very long because of the limitations of the speech thing. My thing with Kimball, I don't, I I slightly disagree with you. Okay. Right? I think Kimball was hindered by the fact that they made him mute. That's mm. true. Um, I don't think you need speech. As a necessity, um, there are plenty of movies and TV shows that have mute characters that are very well developed. I think the problem is Campbell didn't make independent choice. Do you know, like we didn't see him acting for himself. Like at the end of this, Toberman makes the choice. Oh yeah, to I, close the yeah. Post. I was I was wondering what you meant by independent choice. Yeah, no. like he makes like yeah. that independent choice of his own volition mm-hmm. whereas with Campbell last week he was being told to stand in a corridor in the dark mm-hmm. and he did that yeah he was then helping Jamie and then it was protecting Victoria, Victoria. yeah but like he didn't have an independent action yeah on his own if that makes sense like, I think the only independent action that Kimball probably had was the fact that he decided to trust Jamie based but based on the fact that Jamie saved him. Yeah. So But that that again, that's him being somewhat indebted to somebody else. And also <clears throat> I feel like a really a real idiot now because I'm thinking back to some movie and T V show performances of non speaking characters or non speaking actors that have been absolutely amazing. And yeah. it's like, like The yeah. Shape of Water is like the shape one of, water of my favourite films ever. <laughs> shape of Water, a quiet place the episode of Next Generation with uh, the... Uh, oh, yeah. What the fuck is it called? <sighs> the guy who had the three... Yeah, the three people. Like, yeah. Three people speaking I feel, like, It's like, in the, like, it was, I suppose, like, in the context of... Because we were just talking about Doctor Who and, like, your silent character performances. And I kind of get one tunnel vision I can't think of all, like, all these amazing... Like, the little girl from The Quiet Place is fantastic. I think the difference was that the communication that Campbell had was very action-driven. It mm. was... I'll go do this. Yeah. It wasn't conversation. It wasn't his thoughts or his feelings or anything else. It was just, I am a cardboard cutout of a person. And you can understand, like, you know, Victoria saying that, you know, she'll protect him. And his response is just to flex his muscles. (laughs) Do you know, there's no, there's no attempt at real two-way communication there yeah just no, no, it was very rudimentary just no iron anyway, group moment yeah, take it back to toberman though because we've sort of gone off track for a second um i think what makes toberman interesting is that 
the fact that he clearly loves his job mm-hmm. immediately separates him from what Kemble was like. Yeah. Because Toberman is not just doing this because he's being paid or because he's in, indentured in any way. Yeah. He's doing it because he enjoys it. <laughs> and, and he doesn't help the doctor because the Cybermen are evil. Yeah. He helps the doctor because he sh- he had great loyalty to Captain. Mm. And this thing killed her. And fuck you. <laughs> now, we briefly touched on it there, okay? And Toberman, the character of Toberman, is one that is... <sighs> In, in certain circles it's it's viewed he's viewed as a controversial character because of the fact that he is a he's a he's a person of color in the the strongman role and i just want to know like did you like when you were watching this did you kind of did you get that vibe a bit sir mm. so there's very real concerns with minorities minority groups in tv and film yeah the you know in horror films it's always the black guy who dies first yeah you know um kill off your gaze being a really Mm. big yeah concern within the lgbtq community um and you know having the token person of color character be this stereotype yeah can be a problem and it it was a concern for us last week because they they essentially said that he was a savage and he couldn't yeah they literally took away his ability to speak, um, which, you know, isn't the nicest thing for one of a handful of people of color characters you actually have on your show. Mm-hmm. I think what makes Toberman different, though, is Toberman, Toberman's character is not defined by his race. You could have hired someone built like Arnold Schwarzenegger to play this role. And the role would not change. Yeah. The difference with last week and Campbell is that he was set up to be this sort of Eastern, simple in quotation marks, character. And he was a stereotype. Yeah. I think while Toberman can be seen as a stereotype, I don't think that was intentional because nothing in the story is said about his race or where he's from or anything like that. None, none, none of the, I suppose, traits or stereotypes of people of colour are used to describe Toberman at any stage by anyone in the story. Yeah, none of the, and particularly, particularly like, again, going back to, none of the historical derogatory or derivative statements are used to yeah. describe him, which was my problem with Campbell. If he was just a strong man, I wouldn't have cared. But the fact that they're, he was describing him as simple and all this kind of stuff and the racial undercurrent was fairly yeah. evident and like, like obviously we've discussed you know terms of like you know racial undercurrents in previous stories like you know we had our discussion about the celestial toy maker we had our discussion about jamaica in the smugglers and but here i don't think this portrayal or this character falls into that category no like and the way i the way i ask myself that question is it's the same I asked myself that question for, for a lot of roles actually is if you switched the character the actor out mm-hmm. and if you put in this case if you put a white actor in that role would you have to change how you've written the character mm-hmm. and the answer for that is no yeah for Toberman for Jamaica 
I think he probably would have changed it. Yeah. For Campbell last week. I got the sense... Now, bearing in mind, this isn't... Also, last week wasn't the show making a comment. It was a character in the show sure, making yeah. the comment. Yeah. But I think... Yeah, I think Toberman is just a better yeah. character. Yeah. And a more fleshed out and, and a more colorblind character. Yeah. No, like I, I agree. I think you could switch anyone into Toberman's role and it, it it's it, it's not an issue. And bearing in mind, this is me speaking as like a white woman who doesn't know a whole lot historically about um, minorities in film and acting and stuff like mm. that. So this is purely just based on my own experience and things that I've watched. Um, it's quite possible that people did take great issue with this. I didn't see anything in my notes looking it up. Um, but that this is just from my perspective. But again, like I just think it was like I don't think it was from the time, but I think it's uh, kind of modern audiences looking back at the time. Uh, cool. So moving on to Kaftan. I have two questions. Well, I have a comment and a question. Okay. What is your comment? Conniving bitch got what she deserved. That's <laughs> okay. my comment. Yeah. And your question? What was the point of her? So, do you know who she reminds me of? Who? Papaya from the Romans. Yeah. Like, was Kaftan also a logician? Because like, it was the Brotherhood of Logicians. Well, and she's not a man. <laughs> no, she's not a brother. She's not a man. Like, yeah, because like, I suppose it's like usually those kind of like, you know, secret societies, they're, you know, either for multi gender, they're the society of. Whereas, yeah, if it's one way or the other. Um, I'd say, no, I don't know whether she was romantically involved with Klieg or if they were familiar, like there was a familial connection there. I don't know. She's clearly a bankroll member of that society. Mm. So was that it though? Was that just, because like. I, 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 I think that's probably like, I, she's obviously, she's, she's cunning in her own regards, but I think she's probably a bankroll member as opposed to being a logician. Yeah. Cause like, I, I wonder what she was meant to get out of it. Like do you know yeah no i'd, I'd say like, like, is she like does she bankroll the brotherhood of logicians yeah do you know what i mean like I, I didn't really understand her motivation but see that's why i uh, that's why i liken her to papaya because like i get the impression like because she's the bankroller i think she just wants to be like having that like, your power behind the throne type mm. relationship with them because if it all goes to plan then like obviously they have a huge army and, and it's was it it's better to be seated at the right hand of the devil than in his past. That that type of thing, you know. Mm. One question I have for you as well. Mm-hmm. So this is two questions I have. <laughs> you lied. Which which I'm first. I always say one question. And I always have a minute. You're, you're, you're like Columbo. Just one more thing. <laughs> <laughs> Toberman's loyalty. Yes. Do you think it was just a captain, or do you think it was to both of them? Oh, Caft- just a captain. Yeah, I'm uh, the same. I think it was just. I captain. think that that was also what she contributed to this yeah. was she contributed the bodyguard because yeah. the bodyguard was hers, mm-hmm. and I think she's the one. Like, had Cleek been had Cleek survived and she hadn't, mm-hmm. I don't think Tobin would have given a rat's box. About it. Oh yeah, he he would be like you know like it's like um, you know help me. It's like not. Nah. <laughs> I'll look back and I'll say no. Yeah, it's like you know, or like you know, if you know, Klieg was in trouble, Tobin would only help if Captain told him to. Yeah. <laughs> um, did you have anything else on her? 
No, I think that was just pretty much it. It was just like that she's she is like Papea in the sense of she wants to be the power behind the throne. Or she at least wants to have a taste of the power that she's not going to be a victim of whatever plan the logicians have. Hmm. Also, so she put sleeping tablets or something in Victoria's mm-hmm. coffee. But like, Victoria then woke up. Yeah. And I was like, did you not put enough in there? Like, <laughs> I'd say like it was probably that she didn't put enough in there. Yeah. I don't know. I thought that she was there. She's a bit of a conniving bitch. She got what she deserved. I, I probably won't remember her after next week. Like, I'll probably purge her from my brain. Move yeah. on. Purge. So now we have Cleeg. Ah, uh, Cleeg. You're... This is a typical Doctor Who villain. He believes that the evil aliens can be controlled. And then when he sees that they can't, he still believes he can get the upper hand. And he never learns from his mistakes. Yeah, so like... Much like Torbjorn, he's one-dimensional in the fact that he's a fucking idiot. Yeah. Like, he is the literal definition of insanity. Mm. Repeating the same thing over and over again and expecting a different result. And it's like, just, no, like, stop. I The re- the real danger, the real danger, <laughs> the real danger of Klieg isn't Klieg himself. I think it's the collateral damage of his actions against other, on other people. Yeah, like, if you compare Klieg to... Oh, what's his face from last week? Maxtable. Yeah. Who lives in Whitstable. Yeah. <laughs> on his bicycle, buying vegetables. I couldn't remember. I All, all I remembered was Whitstable. I didn't remember yeah. his actual name. <laughs> anyway. Um, the difference between Cleeg and Maxtable is mm. Maxtable also kind of fell in this bucket. Mm-hmm. But Maxtable wasn't trying to control the Daleks. No. He was banking on them keeping a promise. Yeah. Which was stupid from the perspective of someone who knows the Daleks as characters. Yeah. From his perspective, it was less stupid. Yes. Right. From an audience perspective, super dumb. Character perspective, eh? Hmm. Klieg, though, is your point. Like, he wants to control them. You can't control them. Oh, but I can try again. Yeah. Oh, but I can try again. Oh, but I can try again. And you're like, it's not going to work, dumbass. Like, <laughs> Stop. And clearly he's the type of guy who thinks he's the smartest person in the universe. Yet he didn't realize that the the first room they walked into yeah. had two doors. Like th- this was the thing was that like I if if you are the, the head of the uh, Brotherhood of the Logicians, that is the shortest lived secret society of all time. Because mm. <laughs> like it's like he he was he was frustratingly dumb. I imagine that his Brotherhood of Logicians is like the oh well is it from the Simpsons the the Stonecutters yeah (laughs) (laughs) do you know that they sit around like drinking and you know talking about how they're the best ever yeah and then one of them goes out to do something and is royally fucked up (laughs) dear god man we're a bunch of ponderers we're not a bunch of doers (laughs) yeah uh, but like it's like it, it, it's like that one thing of like I suppose like you know these kind of like secret scientific cabals like we'll see like throughout you know the run of Doctor Who it's like okay like some of you are legitimately threatening but others of you fall into that whole tunnel vision or oh, we can't possibly fail we're the smartest people in this room you know 
Yeah. I was like, well, like, you're the smartest person in the room. Try and find your fucking way out of it through the one door that's there. Mm. Um, yeah. So like, he he was an annoyance more so than anything. Mm. He is the like. <laughs> he reminds me of like. Um, what is it that fucking whenever you play a fighting game with someone it's just that person that uses the sneaky toe poke of doom the whole time it's like would you just just go away you're not good <laughs> um so on to the cybermen indeed so we've again we've a change up for the cybermen this time around so we have the cyber controller with his big giant brain and remind me yep in Moonbase, were there insides made of shaving foam See, the only time we, we ever got to see a Cyberman dissolve was in the animation. And there's a lot of sparking, but there is also sort of like that foamy type substance that comes out of them. But okay, so we, maybe, but, maybe they are made But of, we didn't know if that was the uh, control units reacting to the, sol- to the poly cocktail as opposed to their insides. Mm. Um, I could have really done without the computerized didgeridoo. Which was the computerized didgeridoo now again? So when they're talking, their voices are computerized, but yeah. there's this constant computerized didgeridoo noise. Oh, okay. The whole time. Because <laughs> I was like, I don't remember something going. Wom, 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 wom. But that, that, that literally, it just sounds like a didgeridoo that been run through a computer mm. just oh. constantly. And I'm like, I could have fucking done without that. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> it's not as bad as the sing song stuff from Tenth Planet. Cause I wasn't a fan of that. No. But the, the computerized didgeridoo noise was just. Um, what like I liked the fact that they kept the continuity of these being Telosian Cybermen, the same ones from the moon base. Yes. Uh, because obviously the whole shtick of the Cybermen is that they upgrade themselves. So every time we see them, there's the potential for them to look different. Also, we get a bit more of the explanation that we didn't get in the moon base because they cut it. Yeah, they cut it. Um, so I actually like that. With the Cyber Controller, though, I I like the fact that there's like a figurehead. I think it's pretty cool. However. I, I, it's just one thing I never understand is like why is it that you expose your weak spot by having it in a transparent dome at the top of your head <laughs> they will get better yeah and then they kind of get worse <laughs> but um, no like I like you know me like I've talked about the Daleks you know at nauseam or like how I wanted to see excuse me like more of the hierarchy more of their society mm. and we got teasers of it until last week when we saw uh, Jabba the Dalek <laughs> and um, whereas here like oh cool like, you know, it's a cyber controller and it's like is there one cyber controller are there multiple cyber controllers dependent on like where they are is there like an overall supreme cyber controller we'll never know um, and this overall uh, actually this introduces the Cybermats which uh, our regular listener or Green said who <laughs> caused the audio issue we had a couple of weeks ago yeah um oh, the cybermats okay lose the eyes and the weird frilly skirt that it was wearing <laughs> i don't think that's a frilly skirt i think that's meant to be like it's bad uh, legs scaly legs it, yeah it, it's meant to be a biomechanoid thing yeah just make it mechanical. Just get rid of the of, of the bios, because it does not age at all. The the googly eyes on top of them didn't really help. Yeah, 
the antennae I don't mind. The antennae can stay. Mm-hmm. That that those I don't mind. But the googly eyes, the frilly millipede skirt thing. Yeah. Um can go I don't I don't mind the underside of them where you see that they kind of move by like moving like yeah. flaps back and forward. That's fine. But like also, right? They are so loud. Mm. How can they possibly sneak up on anybody? Like, Kaftan like, is a moron. So, like, you have, now you have to wonder, like, is that just because of the audio, audio dampening technology at the time in terms of the recording, or is that actually how they sound? I don't know, but that that <laughs> that they they gave them a specific sound, mm. and they had it set at a particular decibel level. They can control that shit. Who did they we? They can control that shit. Who did we? Compared to Sauron's full-bodied contact chamber orchestra, you know, we said that they were fucking like you know they were very they were not subtle. I can't remember. I need <sighs> to go back and have a listen. Who the fuck was that? I don't think it was the Zarbi, because I think it was after that. Yeah, it's quite. If any, if anyone can help us with that, who do we compare uh, Sauron's full-bodied contact chamber orchestra? It wasn't the mechanoids, was it? No, I don't think so. Whatever. Yeah. Anyway, cybermats look a bit stupid. Get mm. rid of the extras and just leave them as a mechanical thing. I guess I don't mind the leg, the leg things; those are fine. But get mm. rid of the millipede skirt and the googly eyes. Also, like loud, like turn down the fucking volume. <laughs> You're meant to be subtle. Like the whole idea is to sneak up on people. Don't fucking project your presence i think the cybermats are interesting the one thing that i didn't like about the cybermats in terms of their role in the story so mm. their their design and stuff i took issue with but that, that that's neither here nor there really in the grand scheme of things um their role in the story there's one thing to issue with, which is what exactly do they do so i as far as i'm aware they're like sort of they're infiltrator units that the cybermen use like i think uh, do. Like, do you remember? Um, I think they were probably possibly laying the groundwork of the Cybermats in the moon base, you know, over the. Um, oh, it looks like something has been eating into the stores because it looks like we have rats type of mm. thing. But no, I think their infiltration units, the sabotage um, power supplies and in, on the inside. Okay. What from this story led you to believe that's what they do? And ignore your future knowledge. Okay. Ignoring my future knowledge that. That is the only logical thing that I can think of as to, to their purpose. It att- one of them attacks Kaftan. Yeah. She passes out. Mm-hmm. That's but, it. But see, they're on home turf, like, so they don't really need to necessarily fuck with anything else. But, like, we don't see any markings on her. We don't see... So that, that's my thing about them, is I don't know what they do. I don't know what their purpose is. Okay. I'm, going, I'm going to assume that they're infiltrator units. Okay. Based purely on... No evidence whatsoever. <laughs> yeah, no, based purely on no evidence whatsoever. I that, That's the only thing I can assume that they would do, is that they, they infiltrate to do sabotage, and as well possibly, like, okay, like, you know, well, also going off the fact that they rendered Captain unconscious, and they were told to target Toberman's brain. So maybe they're, like, also assigned to uh, incapacitate any potential cyber conversions. Okay. This is what I'm missing though in the story. 
it, it was probably like in terms of the plot and the contributions of each of the characters it's probably the one that I was like they were an interesting introduction because they expanded on the Cybermen yeah but what was their purpose I'm actually getting a, a funny flashback um, so Big finished the thing called the Companion Chronicles where they had mm. a previous companion come back and narrate a a story that like a, like a non-televised story like they, they they had maureen o'brien for the first doctor they had wendy padbury uh for the second doctor and there was a third doctor story that involved someone going to the dentist and i think in their motor was um was an embryonic um cybermat and like, you know it comes out of the guy's mouth and whatever uh, yeah and just as that that sound effect of it coming out of the guy's mouth and attacked now I was listening to this at half five in the morning walking to work and as this happened someone walked past you know walked behind me walked past me behind me I nearly shat myself I jumped like a foot into the air and the guy looked at me and I'm like I was trying to like, just like calm down again yeah I think you know I think the Cybermen in this story we got an interesting development of them mm-hmm. You know, we've said that like when we have these recurring villains, it's nice to see them grow and evolve as each story comes on. I think we've got that. You actually just reminded me that I downloaded a new Big Finish story today, mm-hmm. um, which is the one that has Elizabeth Sladen's daughter oh, doing just, Sarah Jane. Oh, that's awesome! It came it came out this week, so um, I'm sure I'll mention that story when we eventually get to Revenge of the Cybermen because it's a rewrite of that. Oh yeah, I was about to ask, like, what was it called again? The Lost Stories is the sort of uh, big finish series that it's in. And it's called Return of the Cybermen. I knew it was an R word. I just couldn't think of what it yeah, was. Yeah, because it was the original story proposal for what became Revenge of the Cybermen. Oh, oh that, that sounds cool. Mm. Um, so yeah, d- d- yeah completely yeah. side note but f- I would forget f- to tell you otherwise future knowledge future knowledge uh, yeah. cool so any other notes on the Cybermen of Telos no I'm curious to see because obviously we knew that they were coming back because we've mentioned it <laughs> yeah um, but I'm curious to see how they come back again yes because having them in tombs on Telos made sense Mm-hmm. but time travel yes so the next time we see them is it going to be before this after this Concur- is it going to be after this concurrently is- to this yeah we don't know so I- i'm really interested to see more um and i i think it's interesting to see them evolving as characters mm. i think the cyber maths could use a bit more development on what they do yeah and less googly eyes and less googly eyes and millipede skirt <laughs> we like to be fashionable too <laughs> No. <laughs> you shouldn't. <laughs> so now we come to our overall thoughts on this story. So, Paddington, I will hand it over to you. First story of season five. First full Troughton story we've gotten to watch another story of the Cybermen it's not the first or last of that mm. first story with the Cyber Controller there we go yeah what did you think of the story so 
one of my first thoughts about this was even for a four-parter i felt this was incredibly fast-paced like I think it, I think it actually flew by. I didn't notice the the because um, normally when I review an episode, it takes me like maybe about an hour between stopping and going back and like typing over and certain things and changing things. Um, but I didn't even notice that time going past. I don't even think it felt like a full hour as I was doing it. Um, but there's a real kind of like H.P. Lovecraft at the Mountains of Madness feel to the story in the sense of like you know it's a forgotten tomb. It's isolated. Um, like the very limited use of the of the Cybermen as a group, as a threat, as opposed to like you know use the use of the Cybermats and the Cyber Controller, um, also uh, showing off the stupidity of human air quotes here logic. Um, I like the introduction of Victoria. Uh, I think mm-hmm. she has a great rapport with the Doctor and with Jamie. Jamie, <laughs> <laughs> I, I like the way that she says his name for some reason. <laughs> um, great performances from the the main crew like really really solid performances um the takeaways though primarily come from the supporting cast uh what I, supporting cast being the characterization the characters of Cleeg and parry parry does nothing like you expect him to be a body for the body count and he doesn't even do that he he's just there um so i didn't particularly like that I would have liked to seen a small bit more of Hopper's sort of kind of like slightly dickish presence. Mm. But again, I don't know if that would have potentially impacted the story negatively. So, you know, I'll leave that by the wayside. But, but Cleeg, I think, was just like, he's a dumb villain. He's just like, please, for the love of God, you try on using logic and your intelligence and you want to take over the, the world. It's like, man, you won't even get to the bus stop. <laughs> to launch your protest you know he, like he's the type of guy who was like you know that what's that joke uh someday my ship will come in and knowing my luck i'll be at the fucking airport <laughs> um like he's that type of thing so i think with that regards i give it the story a very solid four out of five cool and cool. like we kind of talked in there i i think of all the human-based villains, Toberman was actually the most interesting. Mm, I would agree. Yeah. I would agree on that. So, what are your thoughts on this story? So, overall, I really enjoyed this. Mm-hmm. I thought it was short, sweet, and to the point. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Which I really liked. There was no filler in this story. Mm-hmm. It was action and plot and story for four solid episodes. And then you're done and you're like, holy shit. Yeah. Like, I thought it was really, really good. Um, my positives on top of that, you know, it being short, sweet, and to the point, I I liked. Um, I'm kind of, I'm kind of a fan of four parties. It's my personal preference. Yeah. Um, so I like that. My pluses were I loved Victoria's introduction to the TARDIS. Mm-hmm. I didn't talk about it in her character piece or in the other two's character pieces because it was more of an overall impression. I loved the way they explained the TARDIS to her. They explained who the Doctor is. They explained what they do. They explained where they go because. This is a season opener. Yeah. So it's the first season of season five. If you have a new audience coming in who hasn't seen anything else, this was a fantastic introduction in the first two minutes. You understand exactly who they are, what they're doing, what the ship is doing. You get it in fucking two minutes. Yeah, because like, w- am I right in thinking that... Um, or are we right in thinking... 
that this is the first season opener that has direct continuity from the last episode of the preceding season. Mm. Because, like, in season one, it ends with uh, Reign of Terror, and then it hops into... But like, they, they defin- War Machines and the Smugglers. W- was War Machines... Oh, yeah, sorry. War Machines was the... Yeah. Sorry. Was the end of season two and straight into the uh, smugglers for sorry, season three. Yeah. No, no, sorry. Or, but, season, but three, you, season three to season four. Or season three to season four. Yeah, sorry. Yeah. But like, if you compare that, right? Yeah. So, smugglers, you also have new companions coming into the TARDIS. Yeah. You need to do the info dump. And I I don't think it was done as well. No, it, it wasn't. As I, it was I, I think that's the reason why I think that like that was the, so th- the thing in my head was that this is so definitively like the start of a new season but bringing someone from the the previous thing in it's it's done really well because obviously it's it's shot differently it's not shot mm. um it's not the same camera work or it's like you know it's almost like it's recorded off location type thing yeah um but you know like uh, yeah no i completely agree with it. but yeah please continue <laughs> yeah so i thought that was done fantastically well i love that we've had some solid continuity here so this is something that in terms of continuity, we technically had continuity from the War Machines into the Faceless Ones into Evil of the Daleks. But here it's really much more defined mm-hmm. because in describing how these Cybermen came to be in this tomb, we get mention of 10th Planet and what happened then. You destroyed our planet. That's covered. We also get mention of what happened at the moon base that gets dropped in a very real way. And it's not our companions remembering, mm-hmm. it's the villain remembering. Yeah. And I think that connection of those previous two episodes, I thought that was done really well because it's something we don't get from our Dalek stories. Our Dalek stories tend to be rather one-off mm. from the point of view of the Daleks. Like, you know, yeah. we said it last week, why do they have photographs? Mm. It creates this whole thing in your mind but I don't want theatre of the mind. I want theatre of telly. So. But I, the, <laughs> like, thing with, the thing with the Daleks as well is that the the time scale, because clearly it's a, the, the Daleks are a time travelling villain. Mm. Whereas with the Cybermen, it appears that it's like, their, it's their linear timeline. So far, yeah. Yeah. Also, did you, did you, I just noticed, all the Cybermen stories have been four parts and all the Daleks have been multiple, have been like six plus. What time the four? Yeah, it's four. They work well though, and like they, they do. And I this wonder- is the th- this is the thing. Like, if you're going for like the Cybermen trilogy mm-hmm. of Tenth Planet, Moonbase, and this one, for me, solid stories, fast paced, short, sweet, and to the point. Good development of the Cybermen. Good development of our companions and our Doctor. All three stories had all three of those mm. on point. Moonbase obviously had more companions, so not everyone got an equal look in, but mm. everyone got a moment jamie being the only possible exception there but he was brand new um i think this is a brilliant end to that yeah that trilogy trilogy of stories i think it's fantastic i'm changing my score now that i'm talking by the way (laughs) um what i didn't like okay there is one thing i didn't like yes which is our supporting cast i think toberman was great I think the guy who played him was great. Mm-hmm. Everybody else 
they were overacting so much it was incredibly distracting and when we compare it to Moonbase where we said that our supporting cast in Moonbase were perfect yeah they were on point supporting cast was taking me out of the story I was laughing at them Mm. like Victoria's trying to convince them to find a way to open the door to open the hatch to get everyone out it should be a tense moment and I'm sitting there laughing my ass off because their American accents are distracting or like there's the other scientist Vines Vinner who that actor has been in the show before because he looks really familiar um, he is fucking irritating like there's no tomorrow and just the overacting yeah of it's only of the guest like the supporting cast because our core trio were fucking brilliant oh it's and, it's, and, and, and Toberman was brilliant it's the it's the remaining supporting it, cast it's complete night and day in terms of the level of like the performance of and I think yeah like I think that's why my score is like is is the solid four because, like with the exception of Torberman, everyone is either ridiculously dumb, unnecessary, or just annoying. Yeah, but like for me, it's not the characters; hmm. it's the actors, which is unfortunate. Do you know? It's yeah. The or maybe it was the directing choice or whatever. Like, I think the characters would have worked. I mean, you know, some stories have some bland characters. Hmm whatever that doesn't bother me all that much but like when the character and the way excuse me when the way the character is portrayed takes me out of the story that bothers me Hmm. however that was the only thing that really bothered me and i had written it down as a four and i'm now up to a 4.5 i think it was a fantastic story i'm really glad i got to watch it and like i said i think when you tack it on to Tent Planet and Moonbase, it mm-hmm. becomes like, like do we say the Edge of Destruction is the perfect ending of that opening trilogy? Yeah, this is the perfect ending of the opening Cyberman trilogy. I thought it was fantastic. So for me, it's a four point five. And it also leaves it open ended with that Cyberman, Cyberman wandering off into the distance. Yeah. Um, two things I'm curious to see. Okay, if mm-hmm. like when the Cybermen do come back, how they will do in a longer story say like a six-parter and how they will do in a non-confined setting because all three Mm. all three Cybermen stories have been in a sort of a base under siege type thing yeah um so i'd be curious to see it on a more like you know like out in the open because i think the Cybermen are like a great they're a great villain and we've kind of made some slight comparisons to the borg i'd love to see like just a huge collective of Cybermen trying to cyberize an entire planet but actually is a full scale invasion as opposed to a sort of an infiltration unit for us like we had in 10 planet mm. um yeah so yeah no i think i think i'll stick with the four but again like that that's a really strong four you know mm. i said i was i wouldn't say i was surprised um that the story was this good because i mean you'd been sort of amping it up to me for a while of oh we're coming up to tomb or oh, have you watched tomb yet and you fucking get mentioned <laughs> yeah <laughs> And I know it's because it's the first, obviously, Patrick the whole way through. Yeah. Um, but I went in with my expectations kind of lukewarm because I didn't know how much of your hype was yeah. 
Patrick being the whole way through or this is a good story I think it was primarily I because like we talked about you know this this at times difficulties of getting into a loose cannon performance mm. and I was really excited to see what you would think of because like we've talked so much about Patrick Troughton's acting that I yeah. wanted to get see what you thought of a fully complete story where we get to see every nuance of his performance yeah no like I said massively impressed I think it was great. Would recommend. Is he climbing the rankings a small bit in your estimation? No, he's still where he was last week. Yeah. Um. That that that, that hasn't changed. In a two man race, he's still. <laughs> yeah, number yeah, two. yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> obviously, in the, no, like, like obviously in a two man race, he's still number two. Uh, in, in the two man race, he's still number two. In the four man race. Hmm. I think I think he's still where he is. Yeah. But that's not a negative. I'm thoroughly enjoying him. Yeah. It's just Bill kind of went from ah uh, he's fine to I love him and I want to protect him forever. Yeah, so, exactly. Um, and, and like that's Patrick uh, hasn't made that leap. <laughs> no, but like that's the that's the I think that's the struggle when it comes to the ranking of uh, you know doc, uh, doctors mm. is like that. You have your ones that are complete like outliers, and they're like, yeah, you know, fucking back of the pile, you know. They're the they're the Irish guy in like you know the four hundred meter sprint <laughs> type thing. They're just like you know at the back of the pile. Uh, whereas others like it's like they're really it's a kind of a photo finish as to where they fall in the ranking, and I think because I haven't seen John Pertwee in so long, John Pertwee is always he's kind of slipping down a small bit. But yeah, like I. I watched season seven over Christmas mm-hmm. and I got the season eight special set recently, though I probably won't watch that for a while because I might hold on to that until we get to it. Yeah. Um, but I, I, I like John. Um, I think for me, I, I hadn't seen a lot of Pat. What I've seen, I really like. But it's not like I don't know how to describe it without sounding mean. It's not mean. He hasn't changed in my rankings, but he's still awesome. Yeah. Do you know? No. Um, but I suppose it's like, obviously as we made the comparison there, and I suppose this might be our final note before we sign off, uh, was that we made the comparison like that, like you hadn't seen the full swat of uh, Hartnell, and we're now making our way through the full catalogue of Troughton. Whereas with John, you had seen you know bits and pieces like you'd seen like you'd seen all of season seven i'd seen all of says i'd seen all of seven i'd seen all of 11 is it 11 is his final season i think it is whichever his 10 or 11 whichever yeah. one was his final i'd seen all of that and i'd seen a handful of the ones of, of the scattering yeah so like you would have you had a bigger viewpoint of him mm. so like, it, like he is like he is the james bond doctor because he brought a whole lot of stuff new kind of things to Doctor Who so compared to like watching like you know one and two into their entirety and seeing the aesthetic of them it, it might be slightly different in your estimation it might go down or it even might go you know like skyrocketing back up you never know yeah. but um time like I, said, like, I think I think Bill was an exception mm-hmm. because I thought he was alright before but now I love him and must protect him from everybody 
And thank you, Shane, for the little figurines that you painted for myself and Paddy. Docville is coming to live in my house. <laughs> yeah. Um, but I don't think I'm going to get that with with every one of them. Do yeah. you know what I mean? Yeah, exactly. Um, also, interesting fact: we are one eighth of the way through our journey. Wow! This story is one eighth of the way through. There are two currently existing two hundred ninety six stories. Uh, with the last uh, festive special, uh, so yeah, we're we're get we're getting there slowly but surely. We're getting there. <laughs> cool. Well, why don't we call it there before we jump any further around the yeah. timeline, which we've done a lot of. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, and uh, yeah, so as we said, uh, for se- first story of season five, uh, it's a really solid entry into the Ronan Patrick trail. Uh, so guys join us next week when we join the doctor Jamie and Victoria as they get involved with the abominable snowmen Mm -hmm. I heard they're not so nice (laughs) (laughs) so guys bye bye